Good morning, friends and neighbors. It's good to see you. You're a lively bunch today. It's good to see. Good to hear. We have difficulty hearing up here with these new in-ear monitors, so uh, I'm not taking any questions from the audience today. Just uh, don't interrupt my sermon like that happens all the time. Oh, where are my notes? There they are. That's better than not knowing where my glasses are, right? What was that? Two Sundays ago, I was looking for my glasses, and they were on my face. <sighs> this is a great day today because, uh, oh, first of all, we want to welcome our online guests. Uh, this is a, a bit of a special Sunday. Uh, we have some baptisms later in the service, and as a result, because of the logistics that are too complicated to explain, uh, we're going to kind of shuffle the deck and rearrange the service to accommodate it all. So uh, don't be surprised if it seems like we've forgotten something. We haven't. So... Let's see, what else do we want to mention? Uh, oh, yeah, fifth and sixth graders. Uh, there's a, a notice in your bulletin top left there about dinner and a movie. And if you're interested in that, you can read about it in your bulletin. You got to sign up, though. There's a sign up sheet over on the information table. So, uh, dinner and a movie, that sounds like fun. And then uh, the church house is open today across the street over here, free clothes. Uh, you can take whatever you like there. They're changing things over. And uh, so that's all I've got for announcements. Uh, anything that we neglected to mention? If not... Yeah, Chastity's mom, Denise, is with us, and, and her sister, Tabby, and there's Monica, the whole crew. So uh, they filled up an entire row. Let that be a lesson to all of you. Bring the kids, bring the grandkids. Let's go to the Lord, and we'll start with our worship time. Oh, God, we give you all praise and glory and honor. You're an amazing God, and we love to sing your praises, God. We're so thankful that, that you are so evident throughout our week. If we just watch for you, God, we'd see how much you're doing in our lives, and we'd be moved to even more thanksgiving and adoration. Lord, we thank you for Jesus we're called after his name, Lord, because we've chosen to follow him. And it, and it was only by the urging of your spirit that we did that, God, and we're so thankful. So, Lord, we, we pray that you'd be blessed today by the, the things that we say and sing and, and think. We just want to honor your great name today, and it's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. <laughs> 
love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Your love is a mountain firm beneath my feet. Your love is a mystery, how you gently lift me when I am surrounded. Your love carries me. That's enough, Megan. You've gone four feet. You can point and wave. Our online crowd can shoot us a greeting. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. There of salvation, virgins of God, born of his spirit, washed his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Oh. 
You can be seated if you like. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Behind and before, you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be.
I know it's out of the ordinary, but at this time, we're going to dismiss the kids to their junior worship program. So giddy up. Lexi can stay. The teachers will have a little bit longer lesson today. Fill up that time telling your life story, teachers. That'll hold them. That'll be gripping. <laughs> Some of you might remember years ago when an Eastern Airlines jumbo jet crashed into the Everglades of Florida. The plane was the now famous Flight 401, bound from New York to Miami. It had a heavy load of holiday passengers, and as the plane approached the Miami airport for its landing, the light that indicates the proper deployment of the landing gear didn't light up. Well, the plane flew in a large looping circle over the swamps of the Everglades while the cockpit crew checked to see if the gear actually had not deployed or if it was just a bad light bulb. While the flight engineer tried to remove the light bulb, it wouldn't budge and the other members of the crew tried to help him. As they struggled with the bulb, nobody noticed that the aircraft was losing altitude, and the plane simply flew right into the swamp. Dozens of people were killed in the crash. While an experienced crew of well-paid and experienced pilots fiddled with a 75-cent light bulb, the plane with its passengers flew right into the ground. Sometimes it's the little things that can turn out to be really big. And that's the case in our scripture today. We're going to be in 1 John chapters 1 and 2. And this section of 1 John has some really big words, and they're all spelled I-F. Hence the title, The Big Ifs. In fact, those little words are so big, I couldn't cover all of them in one sermon. If you were here last Sunday, you might recall that I divided this message in half. Well, John is telling us how important it is to be walking in the light. And that's important because he says in 1 John 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. The obvious question then is, how do we know if we're walking in the light? 
Now, in last week's message, John gave us some big ifs already. He gave them to enlighten us, since we're talking about walking in the light. Some of these ifs are negative concepts, and I called them the negatives. For example, John says, if we claim to have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie. If we claim sinlessness, we lie and we make God a liar. If we claim to know God and disobey, we lie. And those were negatives. Today we're going to look at the positives. They revolve around walking in the light, and there are eight big ifs today. First of all, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Look at verses 6 and 7 of our text. John says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And we're going to stop right there. Last week we saw that some walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with God. And John says that's a lie. Those who knowingly walk in the dark or in sin can't have fellowship with God at all, is what John is saying. That's why God turned his back on Jesus on the cross, because Jesus was bearing all of our sin on himself. But if we walk in light, we have fellowship with God and with one another. We have a commonality something we share with him. That is, we walk with an awareness of our condition. God knows and we know that we're sinners. We're aware that we desperately need Jesus. And so we share that knowledge with God. The fact is, we all deserve death. But we're all saved by his grace. We're all children of God if we're born again. So we share that in common. That's why I never understood racial prejudice among Christians. Did you know that, you know, the horse racing season is upon us? And every year, horse racing fans flock to the racetracks in hope of seeing the next possible winner of the Triple Crown. Did you know that all of the great thoroughbreds that run in the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont Stakes and the Preakness are descended from just three horses? Their family lines can all be traced to three Arabian stallions. They were Darley Arabian, Godolphin Barb, and Byerly Turk. Every horse in the Run for the Roses is racing against his cousins. Well, in the same way, we have so much in common, whether we're called Caucasian or Native American or Hispanic or African American. The slave owners of the pre-Civil War era who went to worship on Sunday and then whipped the slaves on Sunday afternoon didn't get it. 
we all have the blood of Noah running through our veins. We're cousins. And if we're Christian, it's the blood of Jesus that especially ties us together. That's the source of our fellowship with one another and with God. We only have it if we're walking in the light. Secondly, John says that if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus purifies us. In the latter part of verse 7 of 1 John 1, it says, And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now that word purifies is an interesting one. The Greek word is katharizine, from which we get our English word catharsis. We usually think of catharsis as an act of cleansing, especially in an emotional context. Some people find that physical exertion is cathartic to releasing tension. Some find that writing a letter and burning it is cathartic when we need to release anger. Whatever the need, the goal is to cleanse oneself of the negative stuff. Well, in the ancient Greek culture, cathartizin referred to ritual ceremonies or ritual washings that prepared a man to enter into worship with his pagan gods. John's use of the word here refers to the purification that comes from adding holiness and godliness to our lives so that we're more fit to enter the presence of God at the end of our lives. So walking in the light ought to result in us growing closer to men in fellowship and closer to God in purity. Our third positive, if we confess our sins, he will forgive them. Look at verses 8 and 9 of our text in chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, last week we talked about the self-deception of those who deny or minimize their sin. You know, people have angry parents, and so they use that as a, their excuse for acting out. Or they drink because they're Irish. Or they are rude because they don't feel well that day. Or they're speeding down the road because the line at the drive-thru was so slow or something like that. I heard a story about a police officer stopping a driver for running a stop sign. And that driver immediately started to protest. He said, oh, come on. I slowed down, stop, slow down, stop, slow down. What's the difference? And the officer says, sir, would you get out of the car, please? And the guy gets out of the car and assumes the position. And the, the police officer proceeds to start hitting the driver with his nightstick. And while he's swinging away, the cop says, sir, would you like me to stop or slow down? There is a difference. We might try to minimize our sin, but God doesn't. 
in the judgment, we won't be able to blame our heredity or our environment or our nationality or our sickness or our afflictions or the people who annoy us. So we should stop making excuses now. But if we confess our sins, God forgives. Many people are inclined to focus on God's condemnation. There's a lot of negative preaching, and God wants us to know that he's willing to forgive. Like any loving father, God wants to forgive his children. When he instituted the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament times, God told Israel in Leviticus 16.30, on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Atonement, ba the most basic explanation of the idea of atonement is to break that word up. It really is at one with God. It makes us one with him when he takes away our sins. In Jeremiah 33, 8, after the Israelites had committed Every kind of abomination there was, the prophet says in verse 8 of Jeremiah 33, I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. God wants to show compassion and mercy. So when we confess our sins and show him a repentant heart, he is faithful to his word, and he forgives. Fourthly, if we confess our sin, he will purify us from unrighteousness. Look at verse 9 in chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that if is conditional. Ifs are always conditional. If we confess to God. Again, this purifying that God does is our catharsis. It's our cleansing. It's the preparation to enter into his holy presence. Think about it. How can darkness just rush into the light? It doesn't work very well. Anytime you see a possum or a bat during the daylight hours, there's something wrong there. Just the other day, I had to flush a bat out. It was by the back door, kind of tucked in behind the light switch, and I had to root him out of there and throw him outside. But I'll tell you what, he didn't like that. Bats don't like daylight. And he didn't know what to do with himself. I tried throwing him up in the air, and he just dropped like a stone. If you see something that's supposed to live in darkness flushed out into the light, it's a problem. We're not equipped to rush into the light of God's presence either. But as we are purified by God, he prepares us for the light of his glory. But that preparation cannot be accomplished by just claiming to be right with God when we're really not. It can't be accomplished by denying our sin. We've got to confess it and repent of that sin. And that's the fifth positive. If we sin, we have an advocate. 
If we sin, we have an advocate. John uses the word if in a note of tenderness toward his readers. He says, if we sin. But there's not a chance that we're going to be sin-free. We stumble, we fail, we fall. And because we will sin, John assures us that we have an advocate. Look at chapter 2 of 1 John and the first verse. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Heard a story about a man who died and went to hell, and he was passing the sulfur pits and the, the smoke and the shrieking sinners there, and he saw his former attorney snuggling with this beautiful woman. He cried out, that's not fair. I have to toast for all eternity, and that lawyer gets to spend it with a beautiful woman. And the demon there barked, shut up. Who are you to question that woman's punishment? And that part of the humor of that story is based on the assumption that there will be no lawyers in heaven. Well, that may be true for the most part, but we know there will be at least one. John says that we have an advocate with the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it won't be in hell that he'll be standing next to us but it'll be before God's judgment seat. The Greek uses the word parakletos for the word advocate there when he says we have an advocate. That word parakletos literally means somebody who's called to one's side, like your attorney when you're being tried. That same word is translated comforter in John 15, 26, and it refers to the Holy Spirit. But why do we need an advocate? Because God has revealed his law. He's revealed his expectations for us. And man universally fails to keep those laws. We break them. And because of it, we need a lawyer. In Romans 8, Paul says that Christ is at the right hand of God, interceding for us, pleading our case, is what he's doing. In 1 Timothy 2, he says there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 7, the author says he, meaning Jesus, always lives to intercede for them, meaning sinners. Who, who are Christians, but sin nevertheless. In light of the fact that the same Satan, or the, the name Satan means accuser, we need an advocate. Satan is our prosecutor, and we need a lawyer, and that's Jesus. So if we sin, we have an advocate. And if we sin, number six, we have an atonement. In verse 2 of the second chapter, we read, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we have an atoning sacrifice. The Greek word there is helosmos, and sometimes it's translated 
propitiation. That's a $20 word, isn't it? It's used in the King James Version, but the New International Version does us the favor of calling it an atoning sacrifice. But that idea of propitiation in pagan religion describes how a person, you ever see the scene in a movie or a cartoon where uh, they're standing on a volcano and there's a, a victim that's about to be thrown into the volcano to appease the anger of the pagan gods. That person who goes into the volcano is a propitiation. And that describes the atonement of Jesus. I mean, there was no volcano, but there was a cross. And he died on that cross to appease the anger of God with us for our sin. And sometimes halosmos is translated expiation. That's another complicated word. But it, it simply means the removal of sins. It's kind of like when you expiate that blood stain on your kid's shirt. Uh, you, you moms know how to do those things. You're great expiators. You're great at cleansing the stain. Well, that also describes the atonement of Jesus because when he went to the cross, he took the stain of sin off of us. And both of those concepts are found in the Jewish Day of Atonement. It only came once a year in Israel in, in the Old Testament. And on the Day of Atonement, the priest would select two goats. They had to be... Uh, unflawed. They had to be flawless goats to be worthy of sacrifice, but, but one of the goats was selected to be the expiation. And the priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat, and he would symbolically pray all the sins of the nation of Israel onto that goat. And after he said the amen, that goat would be the scapegoat, it would be sent off into the wilderness, never to return again. And the, the, symbolically, the, the sins of the nation were wandering around in the wilderness. And then the second goat would be taken, and it would be sacrificed. It would be the propitiation to satisfy God's wrath. And so Jesus was our atoning sacrifice. He served both purposes. God's motivation for allowing Jesus to fulfill that role or those roles was love. It says in, in 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The atoning sacrifice was both the expiation and the propitiation. The Apostle Paul revealed that God had planned all along for Jesus to do that. He says in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in order, in accordance with his pleasure and will. So thank God that we have a lawyer that pleads us guilty but then gets us the death penalty and instead of our having to die for our sins, he sits in the electric chair himself, so to speak. There's a seventh positive here, and that's if we obey him, we know that we know him. If we obey him, we know that we know him. It says in verse 3 of chapter 2, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Last week, we saw the flip side of this positive. Last week, we saw that Paul said in, in verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Well, this is the positive side of that. It's as though John is saying to the chronically disobedient, listen, if you think God is pleased with your behavior, you really don't know God. If you think you'll be forgiven without repenting, you really don't know God. Last week, we met the Gnostics. You remember them? They were those false teachers who believed that knowledge and intelligence was uber important. It was the most important thing to have. And as a result, they didn't pay much attention to the flesh. They lived absolutely immoral lives or they tortured themselves. They had such disregard for their flesh. They were false teachers. The Gnostics put such a premium on knowledge, but they were showing their ignorance. In a remote region of India lived the Telugu people. And the Telugu school primers, their readers that they use in the early grades, had a story that illustrates the overemphasis on knowledge. It tells about a wide river and an old ferryman who had been plying his boat for years. He was renting his boat. He would charge a fee and take people across the river. And one day, as the story goes, three very educated pandits, that was the, the elite class, the educated class of Indian people, or the caste, if you're familiar with uh, their caste system. They were educated men. Well, they came to cross, and they got on the boat, and the clouds ahead were threatening. It was dark, and gusts of wind were blowing out of, out of the west, and they, there was a storm coming. They could tell, but the ferryman undertook to take those three scholars across. And as they proceeded, one of them said to the old man, do you know anything about astrology? And the ferryman said, no, master, I've never been to school. I cannot read or write. All I know is how to run this ferry. And that pandit said to him, well, then half of your life has been lost. Well, the second pandit, said to the ferryman, 
do you know anything about the philosophy of our great religion? And again, the ferryman said, I just answered that I have no education. I've only been trained to do this work that I'm doing. And the pandit said, alas, everything in your life has been forfeited. And the third scholar then asked him if he knew any of the sciences like psychology or biology. And he answered again, no, I've never had the opportunity to study them. And then a fierce gust of wind caught the little boat, and a, a huge wave blew over the bow, and all four men were washed into the river. The boat capsized in the, the middle of it, and all four of them were on their own. Well, the ferryman was swimming for the shore, and he saw the three pandits struggling in the water. He shouted to them, Gentlemen, do you know anything about swimology? And they didn't. As the story says, then all your lives will be lost. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not know as they ought to know. Paul told Timothy over in 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. The only knowledge that really matters is knowing God. There's one final positive, and that's this. If we obey him, God's love is made complete in us. In chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says, or John says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Now that phrase, made complete, is actually the verb tetelestai in Greek, and it literally means mature. It's a mature faith. John is saying a mature love for God is shown by obedience, and the flip side is true. Disobedience demonstrates a lack of spiritual maturity and a lack of love for God. John, as you might recall, was the last of the 12 apostles of Jesus. And he could remember vividly the words of Jesus on the night he was arrested. In John 14, 15, Jesus told his disciples, If you love me, keep my commands. And so John summarizes everything that we've talked about, as well as that command of Jesus in verse 6 of 1 John 2. It says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now let's apply this message. The first thing that you can do this week is to put away your racial prejudice and your ethnic biases. They have no place in the kingdom of God. We are cousins 
by blood, going back to Noah. And we share the blood of Jesus Christ as Christians. And so there's, there's no place for racial prejudice and biases in the kingdom. And a second thing you can do this week is to think about the sin that seems to tempt you over and over, the, the sin that you find yourself giving in to the most. And think also about the excuse that you make for committing that sin. And we all do. We all do. Stop making excuses. God wants us to confess those sins to him. And I recommend that you don't do it just in your heart as you're talking to God, but to actually say it out loud in your prayer time. Confess that sin out loud every time that you give in to it. And hopefully the power of the Holy Spirit will help you to resist that sin and you'll have greater and greater success in overcoming. We're not going to do our invitation just yet, but I'm going to ask um, Chastity Knight and Nevaeh Julian to come up and take their place in the water while I prepare to join them. like to read is <laughs> I usually I usually wear my my Crocs in here forgot to bring them today I'd like to read from Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 6 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have, been, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And uh, what's going to happen right now is a burial because Nevaeh and Chastity have decided they want to die to their old life. And so we're going to bury those former lives and they're going to be raised again just as Jesus died, was buried and resurrected. They will come forth from the water with a new life. That's why we call it being born again. After the joy of baptism, kind of honestly wonder how these words are going to flow, but we'll just go with what God has given us. There's a question in a song that is probably played every September. Where were you when the world stopped turning that September day? It is a question meant to help a nation process through its collective trauma, 
and pain. It is also a question that is often turned around and addressed to God. Where were you, God, when my world stopped turning? A variation of that veiled accusation is often hurled at apologetists. If God is so good, why does he allow evil? Where is the good God in the midst of evil? The late Ravi Zacharias understood that behind every question is a questioner, one who is undoubtedly asking the question from a position of pain. And Ravi would also gently respond, if you posit evil, then you have to posit an objective good. And if there is an objective good, that good has to be God. Rather than an argument to prove God doesn't exist, evil and, evil and pain are an argument for his existence. But the pain does beg the question, where is he in the midst of evil? God does not try to escape the accusing tone and the sometimes vitriolic anger, nor the plaintive lament. Whether you're the kid whose dad was one of those who jumped from the Twin Towers, the cancer patient, the mom of a young soldier returned from deployment only to be killed by a drunk driver, or a myriad of others in suffering, the refrain is apt to run through your, your mind like a train track. Where were you, God, when my world stopped turning? But there's the rub. The one thing that makes Christianity totally unique is God's answer to that question. Only Christianity offers a profound response to the problem of pain, simplified right here in the symbols of the broken body and the shed blood. Brene Brown produced a well-known video on empathy. It portrays one who cares as descending into the hole of the sufferer and sitting with them. And this is what Jesus did. He descended down into this world of pain and sorrow, but that was not enough. He didn't hold himself removed like a king in a palace. No, he literally entered into our pain in the most complete example of empathy ever lived. Isaiah 53 clearly states, he was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The most profound evil is, is exactly that because it's perpetrated on the innocent. Jesus was innocent, he was the most innocent, and his body and blood come to us through the execution of unspeakable evil. He has shared our experience of pain and suffering. He crawls into the hole with us when we experience it, and because he does, he can bring us through it. Does this remove the pain? No, but it does provide a path to healing. I would like to read the words, if I may, of someone whose world stopped turning and discovered Jesus in it. Lightning struck, hit, destroyed, blackened to nothingness, nerves, receptors, neurons, the cells, the transmitters, the receptors of feelings of life, so that part of me, parts died, were left black and ashes. And now quietly, softly, gently, persisting, steady, continuous, quietly, I perceive you working. Sometimes I quietly come upon you working slowly, steadily, steady, at the things inside, at the darkness, death, black destruction, rot inside, 
when the fire coursed through my innards, when the darkness passed through my veins. So there he is, quietly, persistently inside, fixing the tendrils, receptors, neurons, nerve endings, connecting life, cells again, tending and attaching receptors, countering, gently tending, remaking the path of life coursing that had once been destroyed. Sometimes rounding the corner, I come upon him quietly working, and he is always steadily there, quietly reconnecting. Written by Siriscal, 1994. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always. His body and his blood sealed that deal for us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, there's that question in the midst of our pain and suffering. Where were you? At this moment, we can take this body and this blood and we can remember and know without a shadow of a doubt where you were. You were in it with us and you will bring us through that. And for that, we can rejoice with exceeding great joy. Amen. His body was broken for us. And his blood was shed for us. Jesus was our expiation. He was our propitiation. He came to take our sin away, just as the, the goat took away the sins of Israel. He came to be the propitiation. What's going on? What? And every sinner needs their stains to be taken away. They need to, to have their sin sacrificed for and covered with blood and that's what Jesus came to do. And if anyone here has a decision to make about taking Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this is the time. And, and so, as always, while we sing this song, if, if you have a decision to make, we invite you to come down here and to accept Jesus Christ by letting us pray with you. And 
If you'll do that, the elders will meet you down here and they'll pray with you and we'll make arrangements for your baptism uh, without some of the complications that we had today, hopefully. So won't you come as we sing this? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned, and I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me, because you died and you rose again, won't you come, amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, should die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you in all i do i honor you let's pray god we thank you for the the two lives that have been started over today crucified with christ buried with him and raised to newness of life and Lord, we thank you for the, the possibilities for them. We pray that this would be the, a new beginning and that they would look back on this day as the beginning of a, a serious walk with Jesus Christ, one that, that results in their following where he goes and doing what he asks and being his constant companions. Lord, we thank you for Chastity and Nevaeh. Lord, we pray that, that you'd bring victory in their lives at every turn. Help them to grow in their faith and help us to grow with them, Lord. And help us to be a, a church family that ministers to them. Now, Lord, send us on our way with your blessing, with the Holy Spirit's power in us, and help us to be determined to live like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Again, the, the fifth and sixth graders, parents of fifth and sixth graders, make sure you sign them up if they're going to do the dinner and a movie. And don't forget that the, the Helping Hands house is open today. And if Anybody who is watching online made a decision for Jesus, we'd like to know about it. We'd like to talk to you about that. And so we're going to sing our closing chorus, uh, the victory song, and then we'll be dismissed. In our God, he shall do valiantly. It is he who whistles around the enemy will sing and shout the victory. Christ is King.